Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'll never forget how hurtful it was. I had known the man growing up in the church since I was a little kid. He was a deacon. He was a faithful giver. He was thought of as a God-fearing person. People looked up to him and respected him as a man of God who was also a pillar of the congregation. And so when I went to work for him at his tree farm one summer when I was in college, I wasn't prepared to see a different side to this man who I viewed as quiet but kind. I quickly learned that his love for God was merely a vertical thing, a private one-to-one matter. His relationship with God and his so-called love for his law and liturgy was totally disconnected from the people that worked for him. I was only there for a couple of months, but it was a demeaning and demoralizing experience as I was on the receiving end of patronizing behavior and just plumb meanness. As a 19-year-old kid who was going into ministry, who loved Jesus and, and the church, and thought the world of this guy, I was devastated to learn who he really was to learn that his, this reputable man who said he loved God treated people like trash. I wish I could say that was the only time I've experienced that, but I've grown up in the church, and I've been in pastoral ministry for over 20 years. I've seen it many times and continue to see it. And folks, I still feel the painful sting when I learn that a person isn't what they seem to be, what they claim to be. When their love of God and their work for the church does not include treating people with dignity, with respect, or extending grace and kindness to others. When, when they worship faithfully, you see, on Sunday, but are gossips and slanderers in reality. When they cheat on their spouse or on their taxes, when they embitter and provoke their children, when they're often rude to their leaders, to receptionists, to cashiers and waiters, and who are repeatedly ugly and mean to their co-workers or their employees. When they come to church for years, they lead ministries, they hold their hands up in praise and worship as if to touch God, but can't even touch folks in their church with a forgiving hug, a simple smile, or a kind word. And that, my friends, has much to do with why many people don't want anything to do with the church. That's why many of our churches today aren't making a greater impact on the world around us. Why? Because we've not taken seriously the greatest commandment given to us by Christ. That's what I'd like us to look at today. If you missed the message last week, we're in this two-part series on love. Last week we talked about what it looks like to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And today we're going to see what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Our main scripture text is found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. 
You'll recall that an expert in the law of Moses comes to Jesus trying to trap him by asking our master a series of questions, but he's only able to ask one before Jesus shuts him down and shocks his listeners with this. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And at this point, of course, this expert in the law would want to jump in, but he can't before Jesus says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. As I said last week, Jesus quotes from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And to respond to this question with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind would have been the Sunday school answer. But Jesus does something that is radical, something that had never been done before, and that is that he pairs Deuteronomy 6 with Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18. You see, because for Jesus, these two commands are intimately connected. Love of God is connected to the love of neighbor. True love of God isn't just vertical, it's also horizontal. And then look at verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What does Jesus mean? Jesus is saying this is how important it is. Take a look at this graphic. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Jesus said all of the law and the prophets, for Jesus' day, that would have been their holy scriptures. All of the holy scriptures hang on these two commands, to love God and love your neighbor. You see, Jesus is saying that all of their Bible, the Hebrew Bible at the time, is like a door on its hinges or, or a hanger in your closet that all hangs on this. Love of God and love of neighbor. Everything else is simply history, explanation, and commentary. Don't miss this, church. Jesus doesn't mean that the scriptures aren't important or that they're not helpful or even sacred and inspired. Not at all. Jesus had a high view of scripture, a progressive hermeneutic in some ways, but in other ways a conservative one, but a high view nonetheless. And he believed it to be the story of God's salvation and the good news for Israel. But he also believed that in him, God was fulfilling the law and the prophets. That in him, God the Father was revealing his perfect goodwill. And that in him, the good news was coming for the entire world. That in him, God had become flesh to sum it up for us and to make it plain. Therefore, Jesus says, love your maker and love your neighbor. If you're confused when reading the Bible on how to interpret something Isaiah said or what is written in the seemingly bizarre book of Leviticus, as an example, well, it's simple. Love God, love your neighbor. Unsure what to make of something in the Old Testament. The answer is love God and love your neighbor. That is God's will for you and me, period. This is what Jesus is saying to us. But what does it mean to actually love our neighbor? Right? Well, first, let's take a look at this passage in the context that Jesus was referencing in Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18. Jesus is referencing this passage which says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you'll not share in their guilt. 
And verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you can understand why Jesus in Luke 10 gets this question. And who is my neighbor? You see, on this occasion, Jesus is asked how a person can receive eternal life. Jesus tells his audience to love God and love your neighbor, just as we've seen in Matthew 22. And then an expert in the law on this account says, who has likely heard Jesus' broadening definition of love to mean more than just Jews, he gets in a second question to Jesus in this episode. He says, oh, and who is my neighbor, Jesus? And to answer that question, Jesus tells what we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this parable, Jesus picks someone who to the Jewish people would have been despised and certainly unloved, a mixed race, a syncretistic Samaritan whom the Old Testament says was considered unclean and enemies of Israel. He chooses this person to be the hero of the story, the one who shows love to his neighbor. In this parable, it wasn't the priest or the holy Levite who stopped to help the man attacked by robbers. It was the neighbor-loving Samaritan, which is why Jesus says of these three men, who was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Well, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Because as Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, loving our neighbor also includes loving those who we consider to be our enemies. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to update or fulfill what was written in Leviticus by saying this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now look at that. And hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, this is likely a popular sentiment deduced from Leviticus 19.18. If I am to love my Jewish neighbor, those like me, well then surely I have the room and the right to hate those not like me. Those outside of my group, of my family, and outside of my clan. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. And then Jesus ties our status as children of the Father to our obedience of this command. That's heavy stuff, folks. Heavy stuff indeed. And if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, then we don't get to opt out of this for whatever reason or excuse. This is serious business. And the first disciples, they knew this. Uh, that's why the Apostle John used such strong language in his epistle as he hoped to communicate the gravity and the urgency of believing that God is love and that he's called us to love as he loves. Listen to these inspired words about love in 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. John says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. 
Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. And then verse 20 and 21, John writes this, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. You say, well, Pastor David, I love them, but you don't know what they've done to me. No, I don't. But Jesus does. Do you trust him to sort it out? But forgiveness is a process, and I can't just forget. True? No, you can't. However, it starts by letting Jesus soften your heart. Well, what do you want me to do? Uh, Keep letting them hurt me? No, not if you're in real danger. Get out of there, but still love them. Folks, for most of us, we're not in any real danger. We just want an excuse not to deal with our own junk and do what Christ calls us to do. But I can't stand them, you might say. Yeah, well... God loved you when you were at your worst. And you can still act pretty rotten sometimes. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 39. Once again, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In church, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. What does that mean? I think this can be easily misunderstood in an age when our individualistic culture breeds narcissistic personalities and destructive behaviors all in the name of self-love. When in reality, our inability to know the love of God for ourselves and experience it, even allow it from others, leads to so-called safe ways of shutting ourselves off from the truth that we are made in God's image, but broken and not as we should be. Instead, we must see ourselves for who we really are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And sometimes with help from others, if we'll let them get close to us, if we'll embrace accountability, and then know that even then we are loved by God beyond comprehension. In his commentary on Matthew, Stanley Hirewas, the ethicist, writes, To learn to love our neighbor as ourselves means we must learn to love ourselves as God has loved us. To learn to love ourselves truthfully is not easy because we have most often desire to love ourselves on our own terms. The challenge that Jesus presents us by joining these commandments is to learn that one is loved by God so that one is thus able to love God and others. Such a love requires a lifetime of training in which we are given the opportunity to have our self-centeredness discovered and overwhelmed. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you will experience the God who receives us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us that way. For the more we know this love, God's love, the Spirit enables us to love ourselves rightly, we will then make great advances in how we love others. 
But the truth is, a person can only give away the love that they themselves have received. Never forget this. If you see someone withholding love or failing to love, it is because they themselves have that much more to go in knowing and experiencing just how much God loves them, has forgiven them, and has freed them from guilt, shame, and those things that have enslaved them to sins like anger and bitterness and impatience and judgmentalism and gossip and prejudice and projecting their own brokenness, hurts, and pains onto you. It's true, church, when we see people who fail to love or are withholding their love reveal more about themselves and how acquainted or unacquainted they are with God's love than anything about you. Okay, so we're called to love. But what does it really look like? Because it seems these days that a person can do just about anything they feel justified in doing, just get a few likes on Facebook, or that is perceived to be socially acceptable to do, or have mutual consent to do, and people call it love. So once again, listen to these words from Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, the Lord says, So now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Look at this. Jesus reduces two commandments into one. Well, you know, when Jesus imagines with his disciples, they say, a new commandment. It's like, well, well, you gave us two great commandments, right? Or one and the other like it. Is this, is this a third commandment? And instead, Jesus is summing it all up into this one commandment. Love God, you see, and love neighbor into one. And it sounds like this. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. You see what Jesus is doing and reducing it down to one, one rule, one command is to not leave us any room, any wiggle room, any loopholes, any way to get around what the Lord is saying. You know, maybe some of you parents, you've, you've experienced this, especially if your children are older, they're in junior high or high school. If you're not real specific when you lay down a rule or a command, there's some way they will get out of it, right? You told me to be home by a certain time, but you didn't tell me what part of the house I needed to be in. You told me not to, to uh, play on my device, but you didn't say which one, you know? But Jesus here with his command doesn't leave any wiggle room, doesn't leave any loopholes, doesn't leave any way to get around what it is that he's saying. And imagine what his disciples would have heard when they heard Jesus say this. Just as I have loved you, you should love one another. I can imagine Jesus looking at Matthew and saying, Matthew, do you remember how I loved you? What were you doing when I found you? Well, Lord, I was, I was exploiting my people by taking taxes and working for the empire. Yeah, yeah, and how did I treat you, Matthew? What did I say to you? Well, Lord, you told me to follow you. That's right, Matthew. I gave you a chance when nobody else would give you a chance. I accepted you when no one wanted to even come to your house. What about you, Peter? 
And Peter, by this time, you can imagine, is over there looking like, yeah, I wasn't too happy when he called Matthew. But he said, but what about you, Peter? You know, you were, you were fishing. You thought I was a joke. You had to make money for your family, and you were too busy and too concerned to, to follow me at first. It wasn't until I calmed the sea that you realized that you were a sinner, that you were in need of what I had to offer. And what about you, Nathaniel? Do you remember, do you remember how I loved you? Remember you said, what was it you said? You said, what good thing can come from Nazareth? But what did I do? How did I treat you, Nathaniel? Well, Lord, you let me follow you. You accepted me. You accepted me into your inner circle. You, you treated me as a brother. That's right, Nathaniel. And you can imagine that Jesus would look around and say this to all of them, even to Simon the zealot. This, this ragtag group of ragamuffins that Jesus chooses to follow him. And he looks at them as he looks to you and me today. And he says, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And of course, here in John chapter 13, Jesus then goes on right after this passage, a couple chapters later, to show them just how great his love is by shedding his blood on the cross. Just as I have loved you. You see, a lot of people miss this, but you know who doesn't miss it? The Apostle Paul. That ex-Pharisee who once hunted down Christians overseeing their deaths, but Christ changed his heart, gave him a new life and a new law, the law of love. And so we hear Paul having heard the words of Jesus from some of the disciples himself saying things like this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Just as in Christ God forgave you. You say, why do I need to be kind? Why do I need to be compassionate and forgiving? Because you say so? No. Because Christ has done and is doing this for you. And then in the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul wrote this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Live in love as Christ loves you and gave himself up for you. Oh, church, if we would get this, the world would see and know, as Jesus said, that his power is real, the ability to save and to change and redeem and to transform our souls and society. If only we would believe it and stop looking to politicians to fix it and stop looking to movements even to fix it or, 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 or this law or that policy, as important as some of those things are, if we would actually believe this message for ourselves and embody it in our church. Oh, how things would change starting with you and me. So think about all of these things we've heard from Jesus and from Paul and John from the New Testament. You know, we often hear people say, what does the Bible say about it? Sure, it's important to ask that. What does the Bible say? But folks, the better question for followers of Jesus is this. 
What does love require? What does love require? Jesus said, love as I have loved you. And Christ shows us that this love is sacrificial. This love is welcoming. It's it's accepting. It's forgiving. It seeks to reconcile us to God and to each other. It doesn't quit. It doesn't walk away. It doesn't refuse to acknowledge any wrongdoing or to speak truth and love and to work for justice. This love, folks, it runs into the storm. It runs into the fire. It runs into the darkness. This love is fierce. This love is relentless. And sometimes this love is even reckless. For when you do this, when you love like this, Jesus says, the whole world will know that you belong to me. You see, church, when we get this right, people will want to work for you even if you don't believe what they believe, even if they don't believe what you believe. When we get this right, even our enemies will start to think about how they're living and how they're treating us. When we get this right, people will believe in redemption again instead of the myth of redemptive violence, instead of shaming and calling people out. We would believe in redemption. We believe in the power of kindness. And when we get this right, people will flock to Grantham Church to discover the God who looks like Jesus because they see this Jesus in us. So let us heed these words from Paul to the Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Because here's the thing, church, you don't need a sermon series. You don't need a book. You don't need a webinar. You don't need a learning community on how to love and respond to your husband or how to love and respond to your wife or how to respond to your children or respond to your boss or respond to your pastors or to respond to your church board to respond to your political leaders or anyone that you're having issues with. You just need to get this. God's will for you is to adopt the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And either we're going to take this seriously or not. Either we're going to be followers of Christ or we're not. Either the church is going to believe the words of our Lord, of our Savior and Messiah, or not. And if not, we should quit saying we're followers of Jesus. It's not that hard. Oh, the hard part can be doing it, I know. But you see, it gets a lot easier when we stop making excuses for why we are the way that we are when we don't look like Jesus. When when we're not loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we can make some major progress, you see, if we will believe this message. And if we will believe that the greatest heresy and the greatest offense and the greatest scandal and the greatest injustice of all is when you refuse to love others the way Christ has loved you. Of all the things that we get up in arms about, we post on social media. How many people do you hear in the church and on social media and out in the world getting up in arms about our failure to love? 
But this is what Jesus cared about most. As Paul would later say, I I could have words of wisdom. I could be the smartest guy in the room. I could do great deeds of justice. But if I don't have love, it means nothing. And finally, a passage I'm sure you're familiar with, which I was just referencing, is 1 Corinthians 13. What does love look like? Paul writes this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Friends, this wasn't written for weddings. This was written for the church in Corinth who had major problems with authority, had major problems with sexual immorality, with accusations and lawsuits made against other Christians, with some thinking of themselves more highly than they ought, and a general lack of order, respect, trust, and discipline in the church. It's true. The love chapter, as we refer to it in the church, is for the congregation who wants to survive the sabotage, emerge from her trauma and her troubles, and make a difference in their community for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. It's for those who want to take the call of Christ seriously and put his own love into action. The only question is, will we? Finally, let's sum up and conclude this message and our series this way. What does loving your neighbor look like? First, it looks like loving God. You say, wait a minute, that was the last sermon. (laughs) Yes, but remember, these are connected. Loving God. Remember, you can't love your neighbor properly if it's not hitched to the love of God. And folks want to go out who don't know Jesus and don't want to have anything to do with the church who love their neighbor, but they don't love God. And the Lord would say to us, that's not real love. Also, he would say to us that those who love God but don't love their neighbor, as we heard in 1 John, don't really love. They have to go together, loving God and loving neighbor. And look at this, loving the God who looks like Jesus, because we are what we love. We become like that which which we worship. And if we're loving a God who does not look like Jesus, if we're worshiping a God who does not look like Jesus, then we will become like that God. We will have behavior and actions and speech that reflect that kind of God. But if we're loving the God who looks like Jesus, then more and more we ought to be shaped into his image. What does loving your neighbor look like? It looks like loving the God who looks like Jesus. Number two, it looks like doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you. We call it the golden rule. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 12, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. It's very active in that way rather than passive, which was a a, a saying that folks would have been familiar with. Don't do unto others as you don't want them to do to you. But Jesus says, be active with this. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Would you like people to be kind to you? 
then be kind to them. Would you like people to show you mercy and grace? Then show mercy and grace to them. Would you like people to smile at you, to say thank you, to say good job, and to say I'm sorry? Then you do the same. Because that's what love of neighbor looks like. And then lastly, it looks like loving them as Jesus loves you. This much ought to be clear in this message, church. My fellow disciples, how has Jesus loved you? We imagined earlier what Jesus would say to his his 11 or his 12 disciples. What would he say to you? When you were far from him, living in sin, running from his grace, what did he do for you? He found you, he forgave you, he accepted you back, didn't he? How many times does he do this on a daily basis? How how often does Jesus love you despite your addictions? Despite how many times you've blown it? How many times you've snapped? How many times you've gone off on somebody or you were rude to somebody? How many times? And church, isn't it God's kindness that leads us to repentance? Isn't it this love that overwhelms you, restores you, and lifts you up out of the mud and the mire and puts your feet on the rock of his salvation? If that same love is what moves us to change, is what moves us to repent, to come out of the darkness and come into the light of his love, then we ought to do the same for others. It works the same way with others. So then let's mimic the God who loves us and embody that love that gives birth to resurrection and to renewal. Before we close in prayer, I want to do what we did last week and let the Lord peer into our hearts this morning and this, and this time, let him speak a word about your neighbors and your enemies. If you're willing to do that, would you close your eyes and join me in this spiritual exercise? Do this with me, please. Wherever you are, in your living room or your, ki- your kitchen maybe, I want you to close your eyes. If you're driving, don't do this. But if you're in the safety of your home or you're sitting down, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine the room of your heart. Or you can just imagine the room that you're in. See it with your eyes closed. There you are by yourself. And now what I want you to do is to see your neighbors and your enemies that you have a difficult time loving. And if you're honest, maybe you've not treated very well. See them come into the room. Maybe you see a face or two, maybe three. Maybe it's just one. You see them? Be aware of your feelings. Now, church, 
I want you to see Jesus walk into the room. He comes over to you. And hear Jesus say this. My child, just as I have loved you, you must love each other. And I want you to see Jesus bring you together with your enemy, with your neighbor who's hard to love. And hear him say these words. What does love require? Lord Jesus, help us to love as you have loved us. Help us to do what love requires. Lord, we want not only to be transformed and set free ourselves, we want to change the world. We want to see renewal and life in our church, in our community, in this country. Help us as your people to live in love as you love us and gave yourself for us so that the whole world would know who you are what you've done and what you're doing even now. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray.